Mark Caro, and welcome to episode 44 of Caro Pop. Our guest this week is one of the major figures of Philadelphia soul, Dexter Wanzel. Fusing jazz and R&B, Wanzel composed, arranged, and produced top artists at the Philadelphia International label in the 1970s. He also recorded four albums on his own for the label, including his groundbreaking, much-sampled debut, Life on Mars. He was an early adopter of the synthesizer and brought otherworldly textures to his and other people's music. He played other keyboards as well. As a kid in the early 1960s, he worked backstage at Philadelphia's Uptown Theater. The Motown Review would come to town, and he'd help Stevie Wonder get set up on his drum kit. Hank Ballard would play on the King Records tour, as would James Brown and his famous flames. Wanzel would stand in the wings to hold out towels for Brown to grab mid-set. These were formative years for Wanzel, and years later he produced some of the acts that he met at the Uptown. Wanzel's childhood best friend was bassist Stanley Clark, who would go on to co-found the jazz fusion band Return to Forever. The two of them formed a band in junior high school and played together after that. After serving in the army, Wanzel returned to Philadelphia and auditioned for studio sessions. At Sigma Sound, the home base of Philadelphia International, he was asked whether he played the synthesizer. Sure, he said, and then learned how to play it. A long association with that studio and label followed, as he got to know Kenny Gamble and Leon Huff, ran the label, as well as arrangers such as Tom Bell and Bobby Martin. Wanzel soon would become one of the house songwriters, producers, and arrangers as well. He played keyboards with the groups Yellow Sunshine and Instant Funk, and worked on albums by Lou Rawls, Billy Paul, Patti LaBelle, Teddy Pendergrass, and others. He also played with and conducted MFSB, most famous for recording TSOP, The Sound of Philadelphia, otherwise known as the Soul Train theme. He has a story about how that song came to be and why it wasn't just titled Soul Train. At the first Black History Month celebration in 1978, Wanzel conducted the MFSB Orchestra at the White House. In addition, Wanzel produced and wrote on the Jacksons' two Philadelphia International albums, The Jacksons, going places. What was it like working with Michael Jackson and family? Wanzel was happy as a behind-the-scenes guy, yet almost by accident wound up front and center on four solo albums, starting with Life on Mars in 1976. That space-themed jazz funk album, now a collector's item, includes Theme from the Planets, whose intro drum beat has been heavily sampled in the hip-hop world. What the World is Coming to, which was not space-themed, and Voyager, which was, followed in 1977 and 1978. Time is Slipping Away from 1979 was his last Philadelphia International release. Why did things end for him at the label at that point? Like only yesterday. He wouldn't record another album until 2004's Digital Groove World. And in 2021, he released The Story of the Flight Crew to Mars, an ambitious concept album that returns to his favorite topic, space. Where did this interest come from, and how deep has he gone into his own space explorations? When you hear all he went through to get to the point of recording that album, you'll be all the more impressed. 
and he's been touring too with a band that sounds fantastic. Meanwhile, his youngest son, Andrew Popwanzel, has followed in his father's footsteps and become an in-demand producer and songwriter, including on Lizzo's new album, Special. Dexter Wanzel is still making music and can look back on an extraordinary career that has spanned seven decades. And in this Carol Pop conversation, he takes us along for an incredible ride. Get ready to blast off. I grew up between Philadelphia and um, a place in Delaware called Lewis, Delaware, Rabbit's Ferry, Delaware. It's a farm. Part of my life was on a farm. But part of my life was in North Philadelphia. It's great to have you on. I really appreciate it, especially during the pandemic. I've been going on these various deep dives into vinyl and I've done a bunch of yours. I got Life on Mars. Uh, What the world is coming to. We got Voyager over here, but listening to a lot of Philadelphia International records um, and, you know, the OJs and Billy Paul and Teddy Pettergrass. And you worked on so much of that stuff and you were in house. And I would love to hear sort of about sort of how that came to be because it, because you were pretty young when you started off doing this work, right? Well, yeah. Yeah. I was pretty young. Actually, my first recordings. Well, my first little bands were me and my best friends. It's bass player Stanley Clark. Right. In junior high, um, we had our first little band called The Speakers. And we, you know, really got started there. And I was a cellist at the time. And I started playing piano because when I would go to um, settlement school, settlement music school, I had to learn theory, harmony, and composition, and piano. You really need to have to to be able to do that stuff, you know. Um, and from there, after uh, I left school, I went into the army and started playing piano there with different groups. Um, especially when I was stationed in Taiwan, I would work with the Chinese bands over there and do USO shows over there and came back to Texas and joined a band there. That was in 70. I came back and um, that's really how it all started, especially as far as me on keyboards and organ and stuff like that. That was back in 70. And then I started auditioning for sessions at Sigma Sound and by, by early 71. And they asked me if I knew anything about a... Um, synthesizer they had a little putney there um and i said um yeah but i i didn't you know (laughs) (laughs) but to get upstairs you know so i started programming the putney for them in 71 and then in 72 um a couple of the members of mfsb carl and roland chambers invited me to join their group called yellow sunshine and that's really how it all all began, you know, as far as recording is concerned in Philly. Well, um, I'm, I'm still impressed that in high school, you you were in a band with Stan, that you and your buddy with Stanley Clark. I mean, that's like, you know, the, the two of you at that point must not have known that you were both going to go on to such long careers. Who knew? I, my music, I kind of got started actually before that, believe it or not. Uh, when I was eight, be, right before I turned nine, I started becoming the backstage errand boy at a theater called the Uptown in Philadelphia. Right. 
And um, they had all the great uh, shows there, you know, black inter entertainment shows there from the different labels, from King Records to the first Motortown Review and all that kind of stuff, you know. Uh, but working there, actually, my first keyboard stuff was was uh, with Doc Bagby and Dave Babe Cortez. They showed me my first chords on the organ, you know. Wow. And um that's really, really how I delved deep into music because I became such a big fan of all the musicians and stuff, you know. Uh, not every musician tried, not every musician, but a lot of musicians tried to show me. I was a kid there, you know, so they said, hey, look at this is called a trumpet and, you know, this is called a saxophone and, you know. <laughs> And, uh, you know, the guitar players would show me chords on the guitar, you know, and, and for about five years, I was the kid, um, backstage kid at the Uptown. The interesting thing about the shows at the Uptown was that they weren't like weekend shows or anything like that. You know, once a, a show came in, it would be there anywhere from 10 to 14 days. So I got to spend a lot of time with a lot of people there. And, you know, later on, when I was a producer, um, in-house producer at Philly International, people I worked with at the Uptown, like Patti LaBelle and like Jerry Butler and so on, I began, I became their producer, you know, or right. something like that. And they all remembered me, you know. They're like, wait, you were that little kid and now you're running the board. Well, well, you know, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, I have a my my foundation is the Uptown Theater, musically speaking, you know, uh, Uptown Theater before Settlement School and before the cello and all that stuff, the Uptown, because I met so many people and they would tell me stories about music in their lives, you know, everywhere from minstrel shows to to, uh, you know, working in, in venues, doing segregation in America and all that kind of stuff, you know. Wow. Um, and so it, it became a part of really my foundation of wanting to be a part of music. Were there any particular performances there that you remember as, uh, especially, you know, blowing your mind and thinking, wow, this is, this is it. This is what the I want. King records tour, I think, uh, and the first Motortown review, but the King records tour had, you know, great artists like Hank Ballard and the Midnighters. Mm. Uh, who most people don't realize was a great writer too. He was a great writer. He wrote the twist before right. Chubby Checker did a cover of it. You know, um, of course, James Brown and the famous flames were a part of that first King records tour before he, he started his own tour, you know, and I would hold towels for him on the side of the show, uh, you know, in the wings, you know, oh, that's great off and grab a towel, wipe his face and stuff, throw it back in mind. I always tell, <laughs> tell that story about James, you know, <laughs> was, but, he, uh, was he, did you watch how he was like running his band? Like, was he, you know, giving orders and sort of. Oh, yeah, everyone... yeah, 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 yeah. He would dance around the stage. And if you hit a wrong note, he'd dance around and go like this to one of the musicians. And I found out later that meant he was fining them $5. <laughs> he was tough, you know, uh, the Ike and Tina Turner review was very tough because most of them just stayed on the bus. You know, um, they wouldn't come off for whatever reason and um, until the show and that kind of thing, you know. Uh, but everybody else would come and spend time in the dressing rooms and stuff. Um, the first Motortown review, I worked with all the artists. You know, the Marvelous was my favorite 
group nice. out of that first review. And um, Barrett Strong and I, I would always walk him to the store and stuff, you know. I would hold Stevie's hand before Shorty Long would bring him out on stage behind the drums. You know, he would, Steve, Stevie was a drummer. Right. Stevie Wonder was a drummer. And they would, the first thing they would do was put him behind the drums to start his act, you know, before they would take him out front and, and let him play the harmonica. And his hit at that time was a song called Fingertips. Right. The band that was traveling with him, it, which included everybody that was recording. That, that one year, everybody that was recording in Detroit uh, was on that tour. You know, the original band members and stuff you hear on the records. After that, it was different. You know, they were separated after that. That's amazing to be backstage for that and be young and sort of soaking all that in. Oh, yeah. I Like I tell everyone, the, the Uptown Theater, my stepfather, the, the, the guy... Um, that the man that was doing a, most of the most popular shows was named Georgie Woods. He was a DJ at two radio stations in Philly called DAS, WDAS, and WHAT. And his his brother was my stepfather, Clinton Woods. And Clinton worked at the Uptown. He would count the people that were, you know, paying to come in. You know, that was his big job. And um so I was always there with him, you know, and then after a while, after I became the, the Aaron guy or boy, Aaron boy <laughs> at the Uptown, um, I had my own gig, you know, kind of like as a kid. Uh, and I wasn't paid. I would get tips for doing stuff. You know, the entertainers would tip me, you know, give me some money for running the, to the store for them, taking their clothes, picking their clothes up, uh, getting their cigarettes or coffee or what have you, you know. Across the street, there was a place called Miss Pearls uh, where she made dinners for the entertainers there, you know, and I would go get them dinners and stuff like that. This went on for years and I got to meet a lot of people. And um, uh, a really good story is my mom and Billy Holiday were real close, got real close. And every time Billy would call the house, this was towards like at the very end um, of her existence here you know um my mom would get dressed up and i would say to her mom where are you going and she would say you know where i'm going me and billy going out <laughs> <laughs> me and billy and her little doggies you know because billy always had these little doggies with her the times i saw her. i walked her from the uptown once to the vpa club which was only a few doors down in a snowstorm you know and to me she looked like a you know a very old lady at the time, you know, this was towards like a few months or, or the next year she died in, in New York somewhere, you know, that kind of thing. Right. I got to work with all the great entertainers back then that came through the Uptown Theater. Um, my mentor at the Uptown who showed me my first chords was a guy named Doc Bagby. And he arguably created Rockabilly. He actually sued Bill Haley in the comments for Rock Around the Clock. So that's how important his music was, you know. But, of course, he lost, you know. Huh, I'll have to look him Back up. Then. What was he showing you chords on? Was that guitar the or organ, piano? Or? The organ, a Hammond organ. That was the big thing, you know. The Hammond organ was big because so many artists, especially the jazz cats that would come through there, like, um, you know, a lot of the keyboard players played the Hammond organ. Right. 
Yeah, I just interviewed Ronnie Foster actually. Yeah. Um, who was uh he put out his first album in 72 but he was kind of in, you know sort of coming up around that time too a little later than when you were at the uptown but um yeah i love the the, the hammond b3 is such a great instrument and i've uh, i've talked to a few hammond players already um and uh so it's in, so did you learn to play on that basically and then move to piano yeah yeah exactly i mean from what i learned at the uptown and then especially once i got um back into working as a keyboard player early on, I was touring with Bunny Sigler and um, that's all I would play would be the Hammond organ that was set up at different venues around the country. Yeah. I was wondering what you played, how you practiced if you were going into these places with these Hammond organs, unless you had one at home. <laughs> well, I never owned a Hammond organ, but there was one of course uh, in the studio, you know, that I used to practice on all the time, you know, but basically, I was, uh, uh, you know, with Bunny's band or actually that band was became Instant Funk that I initially started with. And they had a big hit record with Salso Records called I Got My Mind Made Up that Bunny produced. Bunny was one of the great um, writer producers at Philly International Records. And he would also perform as a young singer at the VPA club. Um, you know, other singers were there too. I remember Solomon Burke got in trouble with the VPA club. He got mad at him and started singing out in front. And he, uh, the VPA, VPA club, when I was, a, when I was a kid still at the uptown, he would have me hold a hat for him and people would walk up and listen to him sing and throw money in the hat. And the VPA club people got mad at him. <laughs> for <laughs> for doing that. I met Jimi Hendrix uh, when he was the guitar player for the Isley Brothers. And he, sh he showed oh, me. Oh, yeah. He played guitar. He not only played for the Isley Brothers, he played for other acts, too. One time, Curtis hurt himself um, traveling to the Uptown, and they were all on the same show. And uh, 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 Jimmy started playing guitar during uh, uh, Curtis's show, The Impressions. Curtis Mayfield, The Impressions. Yeah. So, he was, so, so, so Jimmy Hendrix went on in place of Curtis Mayfield in The Impressions? No, no. He played that show at the Uptown because Curtis got hurt. At oh, he did it instead of The Impressions. Uptown. I was imagining him in The Impressions. I'm like, that would have been something. But, <laughs> no. Uh, no, he was a member of, he was the backing band member for the Isley Brothers. He was a member of the right. backing band for the Isley Brothers, yeah. But he played it with other groups too, you know. And um, he tried to show me stuff on the guitar, but the way he played the guitar, he played the guitar uh, upside down from the left to the right, and I couldn't figure that out. Right. Um, and how did Cello get involved in all of that? Like, how'd you end up on the cello while in the middle of this? It got involved because where when we moved from North Philly to Tioga, um, I started going to a school there called Gillespie uh, Junior High. Uh, and the seventh grade is, um, and a lot of the people there knew I had moved in, in from North Philly. And there were these little gangs that wanted to mess with me. And I got into a few fights. And wound up, I would hide out <laughs> after school. I would hide in Gillespie until everybody dispersed outside before I would try to go home, you know. And one day I got into a fight and um, ran into the school. And this teacher uh, was teaching um, flute to one of her students as I 
kind of walked by the classroom and she walked out and asked me what was going on and walked me to the bathroom so I could, uh, my nose was bleeding, walked me to the bathroom so I could clean my nose. And then she had me sit in her room while she was teaching flute to this young lady, the young, young student, you know, and uh, I sat there and watched. And then um, she said, um, would you like to try after the girl left? She said, would you like to try? I said, okay. So I tried the flute, didn't like it. She said, have you ever heard of a violin or, or viola? And I tried to, and then she said, well, you know, I'm a cellist, so I'll show you my cello. And I immediately was like, oh, I want to try that. <laughs> and so she sat me down with the cello and that, that was it for the next couple of years, few years, I became a cellist um, well into high school when I beat study at settlement music school and took master classes at Curtis and became a part of the uh, children's youth series where I would, I would uh, travel and do cello concerts, you know, playing uh, scent songs, uh, cello concerto, basically, and a few songs like uh, Oh Danny Boy and stuff like that for people to hear, you know. Do you still play? No, uh-uh. No, I don't. I haven't touched the cello since um, I had to uh, go into the army. Going back to when you got went into Sigma Sound, so you're trying out for them. This is the this is the studio in Philadelphia where Philadelphia International artists record, and uh, they say, you know, do you play the synthesizer? And you're like, yeah. And then they put you down on it. Like a synthesizer then is not the same thing as what a synthesizer is now. What was what was a synthesizer at that point? Well, I mean, there was synthesis. I mean, artists had uh, done good synthesis work. Uh, by by 1970, you know, in the 60s. And of course, some synthesizers, uh, synthesis went on to create international names for themselves, you know, not just using Moog, but early on, and uh, we all love those horror movies and synthesis on the Ars Martinet or the Thurman, you know, were used in horror movies, you know, and... Sure. Um, that's what I loved about them. You know, like you go to a horror movie and you're sitting there and then all of a sudden you'll hear. <laughs> it's like, hey, <laughs> you know, and synthesis you know, had, had a popularity. Yeah, I was a big fan, fan of synthesis before they even asked me if I knew about the Putney, you know. And I actually, uh, when uh, I, I would be doing synthesis stuff there, and one time Bob Moog's people came in with modules and stuff, and I helped them, you know, set up and watch them. You know, this was before um, uh, synthesis got structured down into um, a more accessible way, you know. Yeah, I, I used to love it. I used to love, and I met Al Perlman in 73, and by 70, end of 73, I had my own synthesizer, which was the uh, ARP 2600V, the ARP vinyl, you know. And I started using that on multiple sessions. Um, and um, by the time I was writing arrangements for everyone, I, I would kind of mix in synthesizer. Billy Paul really liked it because... Uh, he thought it made me different. And I agreed with him because you got, got to remember that Philly International had two or three of the greatest arrangers in R&B popular music of the time. And that was Bobby Martin and Tom Bell, you know, right. and I, they had taken that structure to 
heights that I certainly uh, couldn't compete with, but at least with they, I could add synthesis to my orchestrations and arrangements. You see what I'm saying? Which made what I did sound uniquely different. You know, sometimes I would try to write like Bobby or Tom. And then most of the time I would say, you know, I'm going to add synthesis to this, you know? Yeah. On synthesizers, like in the early mid seventies, like they, they, they gave stuff sort of a modern sound to it, you know, like, like that was sort of like that, that, that era is sort of futuristic sound a lot of the time and then you also got those textures in there yeah well but yeah by the 70s it had become popular and there were people that popularized synthesis like isaiah tomita his snowflakes or dancing album became worldwide wendy carlos so yeah it had been popularized and and then especially when uh, moog uh, created and synthesis for people to use quickly and in the studios around the world, you know, um, that, that weren't so modular oriented, like, um, you, you know, like the little keyboard synthesizers that they right. put out, you know, that created bass sounds and synth waves, and, you know, that sine waves that people loved, you know, to use in their recordings, you know, by the seventies, you know, and that kind of like took, took a lot of jobs away from a lot of musicians, you know, like, especially bass players, you know, and then, of course, Lynn Walcott came out with their drum machine, you know, and that kind of like people were were able if they didn't have budgets for rhythm sections, they could go in with a drum machine and a, a, a Moog or a, a Prophet preset keyboard and make rhythm tracks, you know, and not have to, you know, not have to have the kind of money to hire. A rhythm section, you know, even though rhythm sections do still work, a lot of the music, especially in popular music that you hear is done with synth keyboards and drum machines. Yeah. And you could always tell the difference though, I think, or I think. Yeah. So. Yeah. Do you, were you naturally drawn to electronics when you started doing this? Yeah, I think so. I think the Hammond really opened up my mind to try different things, you know, uh, the Hammond B3 created, all kinds of sounds, you know, you know, you could make it sound interesting in many different ways, you know, and I, and I think that's what kind of kicked it off for me um, back when I was still a kid, you know, kind of, but anyway, uh, yeah, the cello is what really opened me up as far as being an arranger and orchestrator. Do you remember what your first Philadelphia International session was? Yes, it was a synthesizer where I played and keyboards on the Yellow Sunshine album back in 1972. And I became a member of Yellow Sunshine. And then, and then soon you were working with um, Billy Paul, OJs. Like, tell me about some of those sessions as well. MFSB, uh, you were doing stuff with. Yeah. So what happened was when... Um, I was a live keyboard player for MFSB. And um, when I signed to Philly International, Bobby Martin had left, who was the arranger and conductor for the live shows for MFSB, which was 38 piece, almost 40 piece orchestra, you know, with rhythm section and stuff. Don Ronaldo, the um, contractor and, and lead violinist of MFSB, asked me to become their director. 
which was out of the blue. What happened was I had uh, started writing arrangements and stuff for their album, Philadelphia Freedom, you know, uh, and um, I I actually wrote the arrangement for Philadelphia Freedom and uh, did a couple of my own songs that I wrote, produced and arranged on that album. And and, um, that's what kind of led me to become their live arranger. Um, I'm, I'm sorry, their live conductor. And we did shows and stuff early on at the um, all across the country. You know, I was their live keyboard player for a while before Bobby Martin left, you know. So I'm, I'm very honored about that because we did that first Black Music Month together. This was later. This was later, like in the 78, 79. Yeah, I read that, that you were it was the first it was the first Black History Month. Uh, right celebration at the white house and you yeah. and you and uh uh you guys all played yeah. you and mfsb all played at that yeah i was the music director for that show so that's why i said one of the reasons why i say i'm really honored to have been able to do that with them you know before mfsb came to an end because it really a promoter stopped you know coming up with the money for that show you know because there's so many people involved and of course you know the transportation the rooming for 30 some people is <laughs> it's a lot but yeah record store day i think was last year had a a live recording i think it was called golden gate sound so it was a live performance of all these philly international bands playing in san francisco and it was billed as like one of the few times that that all of these bands were on the same bill like the ojs and and uh three degrees and mfsb was sort of backing everyone do you remember that show i don't remember uh, that show uh in san francisco must have been um during my yellow sunshine days you know because we were touring as an act you know, from 72 to 74. So I, I'm not familiar with that show, uh, I, you know. But it was it actually surprised me that there there had not been more shows that had all these, you know, like, again, like Billy Paul and OJs and, and all these Philly international acts on the same stage. And I guess that was a pretty rare thing to happen. It was an extremely rare thing. And rarely did it happen, you know. Uh, I guess there was some promoter or promoters out there that wanted to do that kind of a show and reached out to all the artists, you know, and the label, maybe, I don't know. So were you working with uh, Kenny Gamble and Leon Huff pretty closely then? In a way they, they, you know, I had me and T life who was a guitar player that I worked with had our own little company called mills and mills. And even though we were writer in-house writers at Philly international, it wasn't a given that we, we would, be carrying on there, you know, because they were releasing so many people at the time. And um, I, um, me and T started our own little company called Mills and Mills. And then Gamble and Huff sent me a contract saying, okay, well, we want to sign you permanently as a um, uh, producer, uh, songwriter here. Well, songwriter, basically. Uh, in-house producer here at Philly International. And um, so me and T kind of broke up at that point. And, but one of the things we did do together was Evelyn, Evelyn Champagne King. She right, her okay. family, the King family, cleaned um, the uh, offices at PIR. We heard her sing one day and 
and T really liked her. So he went on with her and I kind of signed at PIR and, um, um, but I did do, you know, like I played on shame and did the chord chart for it. And I wrote a song for her album called, um, the show is over on, on that first Evelyn champagne King album. Um, so there was a lot going on, you know, so <laughs> that sometimes I get memory confused because I was doing so much, you know, there. Yeah. And, um, so they, uh, that one time I said, I did this, the first track I did, a gamble liked it, but he didn't like it for MFSB. And he said, you know what? We're going to let you do an album Pierce. You got all this crazy stuff you're doing and kind of want to keep it away from this, <laughs> <laughs> you know? And so that's how life on Mars came, came about, you know, and, um, cause of the stuff I was doing, you know, I was into synthesis and writing strength arrangements with a lot of synthesis and writing songs that, that were very different from what, the other artists did. And plus a number of those songs, most of those, every song I'm singing, except for one on all of those albums that had my name on them, uh, were, were demos for other artists. Really? BIR. Yeah. They got rejected. So they wound up and it was a good thing because I, you know, I was signed to do uh, that life on Mars album. And I did it. And then the next thing I knew they told me, well, you, you had signed as an artist and, and that's a four album agreement. <laughs> and I was saying, what? <laughs> <laughs> so you didn't intend on continuing a solo artist. <laughs> no, I had no clue. I didn't like doing it. I didn't like going on the road, trying to be, you know, promote those albums at all. You know, I don't want it to be, back at PIR in the studio doing what I love working with the musicians and artists and all that kind of stuff. So you preferred being uh, behind the scenes to being out front. Yeah. Yeah. That's who I was from a child, you know? Well, and, life uh, on Mars, it kind of surprised me that these were rejected demos just because it's a pretty cohesive record and maybe maybe you had this the music and then you decided to sort of give it this theme but it's it has obviously this whole sort of space theme arc to it and um, what, what artists at pir would that have worked with you know <laughs> we worked with dexter wanzel so okay <laughs> did you have this innate interest in space because a lot of your works have had the space theme including the album that you put out last year yeah, when I was a kid, one of the things I saw on the farm one night um, when I was a kid down in Delaware was a meteor shower. But you know how you see meteor showers, and you'll see a meteor zoom by every few minutes or something like that. This was like, there were like 15, 20 meteors nonstop. And I never forgot that. And I always wondered, you know, what was really out there, who we are and that kind of thing, you know? So yeah, space, I've always been a imaginary stargazer per se, you know, to this day, I, I, I have a telescope and I go out and watch events and um, do star parties and stuff like that. And then there's something about that, that again, this, that mid seventies synthesizers and just the sounds you were getting that, that fits with that theme. Like it's because it, it's sort of a futuristic sound at the time. And, and you're talking about, you know, traveling in space and everything. And it all, it all just kind of works together. Yeah. 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 It does. It really does. And uh, I've always kind of kept that theme with me 
um, whenever I did um, those Dexter albums and stuff, you know, I, I think there was one that didn't have that or a couple that didn't have that um, directly. Um, I didn't name the albums except when I was the A&R director, of course, I named Voyager. <laughs> but, you know, when I wasn't, they named them, you know, and decided how they wanted to proceed with them and stuff like that. You wouldn't have called it Life on Mars? Oh, yeah, of course I would have called it Life on Mars. You know, Life on Mars was cut. We recorded that. Me and uh, Instant Funk recorded that back in 74 when we were still uh, working with Bunny and stuff. And Gamble was interested in what I was doing and stuff. So they had me go into the studio and start cutting tracks. But it sat in the can because I wouldn't sign that contract, you know, early on. And that's, you know, another story. That was that was the performer contract as opposed to the producer songwriter. No, that was musician. the producer songwriter contract that I didn't sign for almost two years. Theme from the planets, which uh, it, it's always fun when th this music that that you recorded a while ago gets picked up, sampled. At least it seems like it's fun. The beginning of theme from the planets, that drum beat intro, has been picked up in numerous hip hop songs. Is that something that's been fun for you? Has that been helpful for you? Yeah, I think it's been helpful and fun. I mean, it's been arguably thousands of times, and you hear it all the time, variations of it now, anywhere, anytime, anyplace, you know. And um, it got sampled early on in hip-hop before there was licensing, you know. Sony sent me a list of stuff that they had where they think that it was sampled well over a thousand times, you know. But legally sampled, it's like five, six hundred times, you know. And uh, the drummer was Daryl Brown. And we had a, a, a little group that we called the Planets. And he played on a lot of stuff with me before um, he moved on to um, uh, become the drummer for um, Joe Zolanul's group, Weather Report. And then Stanley, actually it was Stanley first. Stanley said, because Stanley had introduced me to Daryl. And once Daryl started recording with me and, and we started uh, doing live shows together, um, Stanley kind of asked him to be a part of his group. And then, Right, Stanley and, uh, Clark, I got talking about your old high school yeah. basis buddy. Yeah, well, we, we were kind of like, you know, together. Uh, that's where I first met Daryl. You know, when I got out the Army, he, him and Stanley were at the Philadelphia Music Academy together, you know. And Stanley had started performing with all these great uh, groups and even doing his own stuff, you know. And he introduced me to Daryl, and then me and Daryl started working together. And then the next thing I knew, Daryl was gone. And Stanley said, yeah, well, you know, Daryl, he's going to come on the road with me and uh, that kind of thing. I was like, what? <laughs> I said, well, y'all guys go ahead. Is Daryl the one who came up with that beat at the beginning or was that? Uh, oh, yeah. No, that was Daryl's idea. To, no, it was my idea to come up with drums, but he developed that beat. You know, he said he had heard some variations of it and put it together his way. You know, he went on to become... Um, a drummer for Weather Report and Stanley, but also he became an internist, a, a medicine doctor. Hmm. You know, and he moved out to the mid uh, to Arizona and became an internist out there. He passed away a couple of years ago, but I, we had t continued to talk over the years. And then 
like three weeks before he passed away, his wife reached out to me and um, told me he was sick. So me and Daryl started talking again and then like about a week later, he passed away. With all these like licensed, licensed samples of your work, does that help your bottom line? Do you, do you end up getting like a lot of checks from hip hop labels because of that? Not in the beginning. I see some, some royalties today, but it took a while, you know, um, it took a while and, um, you know, it's not what it could be, but at least it's something. Let me put it that way. Uh, I mean, it's just, it's so hard to make money in the music business right now that I would think that would help. But That you sign really, unfortunately, can, can be um, unfortunate, you know. I'll, I'll put it to you this way. Um, um, I don't know if you've seen that Elvis movie, but if you see that Elvis movie, it, it, it shows you the dark side big time. Well, there are a lot of bad contracts back then and there are bad contracts now too. I mean, they, they, they continue to, there's two sides. Unfortunately, there's the music and then there's the business and the business will take advantage and, and totally everything you make, if, 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 if it gets you to sign it, it away. What was the vibe around Philly International in general? Like, was, was it an exciting place to work? Was it an upbeat place to work? It was both exciting and upbeat in, in a lot of the times. And then a lot of the times it was a, a, a bit of a challenge. You know, when you become a member of any record label at any level uh, creatively, it's a challenge. Is that on sort of the business side or was it uh, beyond that? Um, artistic dif dif differences? Artistic differences and business. I mean, it was an interesting time. You had, so you had Motown in the 60s that had a very defined sound and really had this sort of pop soul thing going on. And then you had Stax in Memphis and those other, you know, some other Memphis labels later like High and you had that you know, sort of firm backbeat. And, and then Philly International has this kind of lush, sound you know it's like it's like it's like very rich sounding music and and so that was taking it in a different direction did you guys sort of see that as like oh we're sort of like the new thing now or where did you see yourselves as rivals to any of these other labels i never saw myself as a rival to the other labels i think we all had great honor and respect for each other you know what i'm saying i i loved what motown did i mean arguably they became so uh, popular because uh, uh, they got a lot of help in ways that other labels didn't, you know, that were, that were formulating black music, especially, you know, Motown was able to, to get the love and respect of people all over the world. But most, most importantly, they got promotion and, in a way, in advertising in a way that other labels didn't. Like, they would be on TV shows. The artists would be on TV shows where other labels' artists weren't so much. You know what I'm saying? Right. Like, uh, um, like from England, the Motown artists performed on those early English shows. You know what I'm saying? And here Absolutely. in the United States. They, they were get covered by those British bands, too. 
Yeah. And they would be on the first, they would be the first artist, uh, uh, pop artist, R&B artist to pop up on Ed Sullivan and stuff like that. You know what I'm saying? And that became primarily a great marketing uh, strategy for Motown that other labels just didn't have. Don't get me wrong. Sure. Other labels, artists uh, were uh, on shows too, but not, not, not like that, you know? And so that's why so many stations across the world really propagated and promoted Motown's music in a way that other labels didn't get promoted, you know? Right. Well, you had, you, you had some built-in promotion in the seventies when Soul Train chose, uh, you know, it's theme song from the MF, uh, SB record. And, uh, I, and, and I know exactly what happened there because, um, Campbell and Huff wrote that, of course, Bobby Martin arranged it and it was for the Soul Train TV show. And it was called Soul Train at first, but Don Cornelius didn't like that. And he didn't want that his, his show's name on the record. So he, so Gamble and Huff called it, even though he accepted it as uh, an opening theme for his show. So Gamble and Huff called it TSOP, the sound right. of Philadelphia, you know, instead of Soul Train. But they did a version where uh, the Three Degrees are singing Soul Train, Soul Train, you know, that kind of thing, you know. Uh, people all over the world, you know, that kind of thing, you know. And um, so Don Cornelius used it. And then later on, you know, because he was working with Dick Griffey and Solar Records, it, later on, he said that was one of his one and only mistakes. <laughs> that he didn't just let him call the song Soul Train. Exactly. That's good branding, that song. Yeah, it's, it's kind of yeah. funny that he wanted to yeah. call TSOP because I, I knew it as TSOP when it was out. And then I'm like, oh, but it's a Soul Train uh, right, you know, exactly. theme because he's here on that. Yeah, exactly. And it also makes you think it wasn't written for Soul Train. You, it makes you think they recorded it and then Soul Train was like, hey, we like that. We'll, we'll use that as our theme song. No, it was written for the Soul Train TV show. Yeah. And submit it, submit it to um, Don Cornelius, but he turned it down as the title, <laughs> but he accepted it and, and put it on the show. Were there, were there certain, you know, hits that Philly international had that, that felt like it sort of elevated the label, like whether it was something like backstabbers, you know, OJs, which is earlier or, or TSOP where there was a feeling of, Oh, we're, we're really like happening now. Yes, of course, with Backstabbers. That was the first big record, um, big single for Philadelphia International Records. Don't forget that they had labels before that. Gamble and Huff did. You know, they had right. records, you know. Uh, and when they were working out in New York, Huff had a label called Huff and, Huff and Puff, you know, and... <laughs> So they had labels that they, just like with Motown, you know, before Motown, there was Tamla, there was Gordy and so on and so on, you know? And um, so once Gamble and Huff set up Philadelphia International Records, they transferred the artists they had signed to their labels, to that label, you know? Um, and I, the first big hit for um, um the Philadelphia International Records, as I recall, is Backstabbers. The first big hit for Gamble and Huff I, uh, on the, one of their own labels 
was Cowboys to Girls. That's their first million seller, you know. But before that, they had hits on on Gamble Records like uh, United and on the Intruders. You know, right. the Intruders were very important to Gamble Records. You know, not so much to Philly International Records. Right. Yeah, and that 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 OJ's record because it's not the first OJ's record because they had albums that were coming out in the '60s. But right. when they yeah. when they debuted on Philly International, you had Backstabbers, which is a big hit, and then the last song on that record is Love Train, which is another hit. And sort of a it's sort of like the the flip side of it. Backstabbers is your sort of like right, dark, right, brooding right. early '70s, you know, soul song, and then Love Train is everybody jump around and be happy sort of song. Well, you know, John Whitehead. Or, or Gene McFadden, you know, McFadden and Whitehead had a lot to do with those early records. Uh, and what happened to them was that they wanted to be recording artists when they when they met up with Gamble and Huff during Gamble Records and Philly International Records. But Huff didn't want them to be. He wanted them to be just in-house writers and, and producers. And, you know, uh, McFadden and Whitehead um, had had been in a group called the Epsilons and which was being managed by Otis Redding. And when Otis Redding uh, passed away, when his, you know, he had that plane crash, um, the group broke up and, and John and Gene decided to go over to uh, Gamble and Huff and start working with them, which they did, but they, their whole premise was to be recording artists, but Huff didn't really want that to happen. And so for for years, they couldn't be recording artists. And then finally, I was the A&R director at the time. And John came in my office or we had been working together. I'd written some arrangements for them. And he said, Dex, he said, are they really going to do our song that we presented as artists to be signed on the OJs? And I said, what are you talking about? You know, and he explained to me what was going on. So I went to Kenny's out, uh, office and I said, Kenny, you know, we got a problem. You know, uh, John is upset and he says that they're going to leave if this song they're doing uh, on the OJs is 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 not d- done by them. That you're doing on the OJs is not done by them. And he said, well, OK, tell them to go ahead and do rhythm track and do some vocals and let's see what it sounds like, you know. And it became Ain't No Stopping Us Now. And Ain't No Stopping Us Now is their story about what was happening with them as far as becoming recording artists. Yeah, McFadden and Whitehead. That was a big hit. Yeah. Calling to Philadelphia International Records is sort of their statement of ambition, like throwing international in there. Like, yeah, we're not just we're not just Philly. We're like around the world. Exactly. Were there certain artists there who you particularly liked working with? Like, I know you worked with Billy Paul a bunch, but like, like who were the ones that you maybe connected with the most? All of them. Don't forget my uptown. For me, working with each and every artist was a great honor. I was a great fan. I was friends with all the artists there, all of them. And that kind of it's my legacy that I was able to become friends with such amazing, gifted, wonderful people. You know, all of the artists that I worked with there, I knew for years, um, me and Billy Paul were close up until 
till he passed recently. You know, I became his music director for some shows. Lou Rawls wanted me to be his music director. I became his executive producer of his last R&B album for CBS. You produced a bunch of his records, didn't you, Lou Rawls? Yes. I produced on all of his uh, Philly International records, I, I think. Me and Teddy were close friends. You know, I wrote arrangements and did productions for him. Um, as A&R director, I pulled that TP album together because Gamble wanted to put out an album of stuff that was in the can. And I argued that point with him. And he said, well, you go ahead and come up with something. And I did the TP album, you know, which is this biggest selling album. I'm very proud of that. You know, that I was able to do that on the A&R side, you know, right. and, and write arrangements and productions that I did, like put him and Stephanie Mills together for um, feel the fire and take me in your arms tonight and all that kind of stuff, you know, and, and then when Cecil Walmack showed up at Philly International, you know, he presented me songs for Teddy and I did two of them. One of them is Love TKO, you know, so, um, yeah, yeah, me and Teddy were very close. Uh, I became his, um, uh, his production manager for his company, um, TP Productions. So like with Miles J, his, his song, um, uh, I've Been a Fool for You, which was a big R&B record here in the States. I produced it, put it together for T Teddy Bear Productions, you know. Um, so, yeah, I, I, I was close with all the artists. Yeah, well, yeah, because Teddy Pendergrass was with Harold Melvin and the Blue Notes first and then sort of went went solo, all of it on Philly International. Do you know how he was uh, originally a member for Harold Melvin and the Blue Notes? Tell me. He was the drummer. He was the, he was the very good singing drummer. <laughs> he was the drummer and, Te and Harold heard him singing one day and said, look, I'm, I'm, I'm going to call you up from the drums on one of our songs, you know? And he started doing that with Teddy and the audience would go crazy, you know, bringing him up from the drums to sing something. And then Harold said, okay, well you ain't the drummer no more. <laughs> <laughs> Well, especially when you bring someone up from the drums, you don't expect them to have the voice of Teddy Pendergrass. <laughs> was that an easy or hard transition when he went from that band to just being a solo artist? It was, um, it was a tough transition. I actually, I was playing keyboards with MFSB uh, at the time that he finally broke up with Harold and had recorded his first album. And the first show he ever did he opened for, um, no, we were performing in Chicago as MFSB. I was the live keyboard player. And somehow he got put on that show at the last minute. That was his first show as a solo artist. And all we had to, to go by was charts that he had, that, that he had gotten from Philly International for that album, that first album he did. And they gave them to the uh, all of us uh, in MFSB, those charts. And we played the charts at the spare of the moment of wow. for his first live show. Yeah. Are there performances you remember either in the studio or live from that era where you just sort of sat back and you're like, wow, I, I can't believe I just heard that? Um, well, you got to understand, for me, every performance was like, wow. So I really have no pre preferences, you know. 
I would go like with the one thing with Patti LaBelle was the fact that when she was with the Blue Notes back when I was a kid, you know, she wasn't, uh, her voice was different to me, you know, from when they were singing down the aisle or I sold my heart to the junk man. And the funny thing is, is that I sold my heart to the junk man was not the Bluebells. It was a different group that's actually on the record. But the Bluebells name was put on that record. And I, you know, I was told that story many years ago. And um, so I knew that Patty didn't sound like that, you know. <laughs> and, and when I was in the studio with her doing Shoot Em On Sight, I think that was a moment for me that, you know, Shoot Em On Sight was just like an album cut. But, uh, and of course, the hit I had with her was Living All, not Living All Alone, that was Phyllis, uh, was um, um, uh, If Only You Knew, If Only You Knew, uh, was a big hit record that I had with her. Um, but when it, when she sung Shoot Em On Sight and I heard her voice on that, it, I guess if there was a, a moment that 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 would be it, I guess, because hmm. it was it was different, you know, it was more powerful than you remembered. Yeah, of, of course. Yeah. Much more powerful. And you worked with like Michael Jackson and the Jacksons, too, right? Yeah. Yeah. They had like their one Philly album and two, two Philly albums, the Jacksons. And then what was the other one? Uh, going Places. So what were what were they like to work with? We became close friends, you know, to this day. I still reach out to Tito. Um early on, we me and Tito, we hung out together. I went and stayed in LA with them, you know. I mean not LA, but uh the, the valley with them and and hung out and we traveled together, did all kinds of things together over the years, you know. Um and and what was funny was when they first came to PIR um, for that first album, they asked Gamble and Huff, they wanted to work directly with me on that first album because Gamble had said to them, if y'all got these songs you've written, um, we can do them here, you know? So they asked Gamble to let me be their arranger and co-producer on the stuff that they did. You know, which I found wonderful, you know, they liked me and I, and I certainly was a big fan of theirs, you know, especially their Jackson five days, you know, and um, right. um, so I worked very close with them, um, became very close with them. Um, all their stuff like they did different kind of lady blues away style of life. I, I wrote all their arrangements for them, you know. And help keep on dancing and living together. I think you wrote those songs for them. Yeah, I wrote those songs for them. Yeah. And um, my whole thing was uh, did, did, they wanted to do like a, a stage song. And I, that's what keep on dancing was was for their stage performances and living together was like um, my version of a Philly International production arrangement, you know, for them. But I want it to be different. <laughs> you know, that's what Keep On Dancing is. That's different, you know. And uh, Jump For Joy is different, you know, which was 
I was on the road when they did uh, Gone Places, so I didn't really get to work with them that close like I did the first album. So what were they like in the studio? Were they just up for all your ideas? Oh, we had a ball. It had plenty of fun, you know. Uh, I would always... and There was a little anxiety there with them because they were so used to uh, Jermaine doing... Uh, uh, you know, uh, supplemental lead vocals. Um, but I got Jackie to do a few things, you know what I'm saying? And that, that worked out, you know? So was Jermaine not there? No, he wasn't there. I didn't realize that, that he was out at that point. He separated, he separated from them. He was married, marrying Barry's daughter and got caught up in the Motown thing. And Motown made him a vice president and all that. And actually Jermaine came to see me after what, what, well, what happened? I, I, I did Jermaine's album. Um, where are you now? Stevie and Barry Gordy reached out to Kenny Gamble. Next thing I knew, Kenny says, look, uh, I need you to go to LA and work with Stevie and Jermaine on his album. Um, let's get serious. Right. I remember and that Jackson's one. Album. Yeah. I wrote all the arrangements for that album. Now, here's the funny thing. Gamble sends me out there to, to, to work on that album. And I do the work and me and Stevie, you know, we talk, talk about our uptown days, <laughs> you know? And um, um, so I wrote the arrangements for that album and I get back to Philly and Gamble's mad at me. And I'm saying, well, what's going on? And and he said, well, if you like it so much out there, you can go. You can go stay out there. <laughs> and it turned out that they wanted me for other projects there at Motown. Um, and I didn't know that. And also, Gamble got mad and he sent out a letter to them stating that they had to say on Jermaine's album that Dexter Wontel appears courtesy of, of Philly, Philly International Records, executive producers, Gamble and Huff. And of course, Motown wouldn't do that. <laughs> you know? You're just caught in the middle there. Woo! Was I caught in the middle? <laughs> it was like, from that point on, from that point on, that became the end, the beginning of the end. Let me put it to you that way. Of you and Philly International? Yeah, I mean, I was there for another year or two, but it was like, it was tough. Let me put it to you that way. Just walking in the building at that point was tough for me. So you put out a new album last year. Uh, so you had you had your four records on PIR, and then you had one digital. Five group. records. Five records. Okay. Yeah. What's Universe. The Universe was a Dexter Wine sell album. They called me back like ten years later to do that album. Asked me to make an album, which I did. And then when it came out, it wasn't called Dexter Wine Cell. You know, it was called Universe. Oh. See, I didn't. I didn't have. That's why I didn't have that one. I didn't realize. But you wrote everything and on that and. And then you had Digital Groove World in 2004. Which I did. I did that album myself. And I wanted to continue making music. Um, I had stopped performing. Um, financially, we were in a rut. And so financially, I've been in a rut, rut since day one. But that's another story. 
So I decided, you know, to go into my little studio and uh, that I had built in my basement and I did digital groove world. I got one of my friends that was an engineer at uh, a Sigma sound to master it. And, um, I put it out and it did quite well over the years in places like CD baby and how they distribute and stuff like that, you know? Right. Yeah. It's yeah. The distribution in this whole digital era got really tricky. And then, and then last year you had the story of the flight crew to Mars, which is a pretty ambitious sort of concept album again, you know, going back to Mars with you, um, but with these little interludes and scenes and then songs. How did that yeah, come about? I, I did it for myself and my family primarily because I I I knew from Jump Street that labels didn't like that. From back in the day, they didn't like stories being told and stuff like that prior to the records because they, getting radio to play it and stuff like that would be a challenge. You know what I'm saying? And um, but I, I I wanted to tell that story because you know I I love I love what the future holds, you know, I've known for years, I have friend, a friend that works at, at NASA JPL, you know, actually they had me come out to NASA JPL a few years ago because they use life on Mars to wake up the uh, Mars Rover curiosity. So uh, they've put me through uh, security and everything like, and the security was off the charts, you know, and had me in mission control and to, to see the rovers on Mars and everything, you know. So to this day, I have, uh, um, uh, um, you know, I'm 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 a amateur stargazer. You know, I read the books. Uh, I follow all the happenings that's going to happen, you know, especially with um, uh, ap apogees and perigees and um, with um, meteor showers and stuff like that, you know, with... Uh, conjunctions everything you know so was that a theme was that a thrill for you to be down at nasa and watch the rover are you kidding <laughs> yeah i would imagine it would be uh, <laughs> yeah that was uh, pretty amazing and my friend he's a, he's actually written a lot of the software for the orion projects which are going to the moon next year and, and in in 2024 did you enjoy putting an album together again for the first time in 17 years? Oh yeah. I like, I, I really liked it. I had started performing again. I had a health issue, which, which really kept me from being out there for about 20 years. And it still does, but they finally found something. Let me put it to you this way with this health issue. I have, it's a rare blood disease. What I had, um, when she's, once I start bleeding, the key is to stop bleeding, right? So when that happens with this uh, ITP, you have to go into a hospital and be put on blood transfusion and float, uh, frozen platelets, okay? So that's, that's uh, like the, the basic thing, right? Until they finally came up with something uh, that worked outside of the hospital, which was a pill regimen that has finally worked for me. So in and out of the hospital, I've been able to do, do some performances over the years, but obviously not like the way I could have, you know, um, because 
it's not like going to, with ITP when you're one of those ITP patients. It's not like going to the hospital for a few hours to get a blood transfusion, right? Until your body stops bleeding, you could be in there. I have been in there as, as much as not just for a few hours, but for five months. Wow. In other words, I've been in a patient bedroom at Einstein Hospital from February of 2018 till June of 2018 before my body start building its own platelets and it would stop bleeding. So I've been dealing with that. I mean, sometimes I go in for a, a week, sometimes a month. And then in between when I'm not, I, I, I do what I can. And I really wanted to make this album, you know, um, because of, because of that reason, you know, and, but then finally in 2019, they came up with a pill regiment that's been working for me. Oh, that's great. That's yeah. That's a pretty serious thing to have hanging over your head for 20 years. Hang, yeah. And you live with it, but you learn how to live with it. And I have so much honor and respect for chemotherapy patients because I did that too, where I was in chemotherapy for, for years, you know, where, where I had to go in twice a week for chemotherapy, like, um, of uh, uh, people that go in for kidney problems and have right. to do dialysis, you know, it's the same thing. Or if you have cancer and have, and it won't, won't go into re remission for years, you do chemo, you know, or radiation, you know? So I have tons of respect and honor for all of us that do that. And, you know, back in 2019, I almost went on a cruise because I, I heard about this cruise that was going out for, chemotherapy patients and for um, for um, um, dialysis patients where they could go out, get their chemotherapy, get their dialysis, but be on a cruise. So I said to Judy, I said to my wife, I said, oh, they got a cruise out there. Let's check it out. But they wouldn't they wouldn't do ITP patients. <laughs> oh, <laughs> but, but so, you're, out, you're you're outperforming now, though. Yeah, 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 yeah. I'm back to performing. I've been the past couple of years. I've gone to Europe like a few times, you know, and I'm going back um, in, in a couple of weeks. I'm going back to Europe. So how have you how have you enjoyed that as someone who always enjoyed being behind the scenes? How are you how are you enjoying like being able to get back out on stage again? Well, it's like the uptown. What it is, is that I'm representing now, you know, like so many wonderful artists I've been able to work with and 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 knew or that I, you know, had a connection with, you know, I can represent them, you know, keep that legacy that they had out there going. You know, I do uh, some of Teddy stuff. I do some of Lou's stuff. I do Phyllis's, uh, you know, all, all the stuff I had or was a part of uh, in some way or fashion. You know what I'm saying? Right. Yeah. And, and, and then you're, and you're obviously out there. You have a, you have a band that you're with. Yeah. 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 I work with a band over there that, that it, it's called Ernest McConan family. I'll send, I'll send you a link to a video so that you can hear what we sound like, you know, over mm -hmm. there. And Damon Williams travels with me. He's a vocalist. He was the last signed artist at Philly international records many years ago, you know, and he travels with me and does vocals and stuff. And then we have two wonderful female vocalists over there that work with us, Gina Foster and Susan Alati, you know, and um, 
uh, it's a small group, but we do a great job. The next year, they're putting together a tour for us where we will be going to, from what I'm being told, where we will be going back to France because we did Paris. Um, was it early this year we did Paris? Yeah, we did Paris early this year. And we're going back to Paris. We're going, but this time we're going not just to the UK and France. They're saying we're going to uh, Germany, uh, Switzerland, uh, Croatia, uh, Austria, uh, over there. So it doesn't sound like uh, you're going to hit Chicago in that tour. You got to come this way. We're closer than those places. I was going to Chicago um, last year, uh, uh, but because uh, um, what happened in 2018, I had all these gigs lined up and one of them was Chicago. One of them was to Chicago and I had to cancel everything. And none of those promoters have reached back out to me, you know? All right. We'll see what we can do on that. You still in touch with Gamble and Huff, by the way? Gamble calls me quite frequently, um, but Huff, Huff never really liked me. And I'm being honest about that. <laughs> never really spoke to me, never really liked me. Um, and for that reason, I, I don't really talk to him. Hmm. Did those two work together mostly, or was it usually you dealt with one of them or the other one? No, I always dealt with Gamble, except for that time that I did, um, yeah, that was the Damon Williams uh, project. He had me write a loop, that last Lou Rawls album and the Damon Williams project. He huff. So he had me write these um, these arrangements for both Lou Rawls and Damon Williams. Um, and the Lou Rawls arrangement he had me write was uh, "Take Time to Smell the Roses," and this is, is on an album. Um, that's actually in the can that was never released. Huh. And um, yeah, I did some productions on it and it was put in the can. It was never released because of uh, what happened when they tried to release that album after Phyllis Hyman died, uh, which I, they had me come into Philly. They had me come into Philadelphia years later and and do productions redo productions on an album for phyllis hyman called forever with you and what it was was a lot of stuff that they had in the can that had been done but because of their issues with cbs they couldn't use the productions for those songs they could only use her voice So, so you had to, had to go create in. an entire backing then? Exactly. For eight of the tracks on that album, you know, I went in. So Gamble, yes, Gamble calls me. <laughs> Let me yeah. play that. Well, thank you so much for talking to you. This has been a real pleasure. I've been, you know, enjoyed your work and sort of been learning more about it over the last couple of years too. So uh, the fact that you actually got back to me and did this was pretty exciting for me. And these are fantastic stories i'm going to go you're going to send me back to a lot more of these records to listen to them now and listen to what you're you're up to it's a small band don't get me wrong it's a small group of people but we we have a great sound i believe flight crew to mars that's a it's a cool record and it's great to hear you continuing to do this can i be honest with you about that album i think that album even though i i'm working with uh, just one person out of the uk 
who ha- had recently was able to set up a little label and do this and get a distribution deal with uh, Sony. I think that in the, in the coming years, that album will pick up um, more listeners and, 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 and people who will start to relate it to what's going on for us on this earth, you know, because that's going to happen one day. There's going to be a crew that's going to go to Mars. You know what I'm saying? But there are dangers involved, you know, and I just wanted to, because that's what's always happened. It's like Apollo 13, you know, what happened, you know? So that is why I wanted to go ahead and all my kids and family members and friends helped me do that. You know, um, <laughs> all, the little, all the little scenes and stuff. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And they all love, love being a part of it. And I just did it in, in my little basement studio. I had a friend, Mike, Mike Tarzia, the son of Joe Tarzia, who founded and created Sigma Sound Studios and was the great engineer that worked with so many great artists there. He mastered it right before he passed away. Mm. So it has a lot of connections for me. That's it for episode 44 of Carol Pop. Thanks so much to Dexter Wanzel for sharing such a treasure trove of great memories and stories. You can buy his latest album, The Story of the Flight Crew to Mars, on his website, DexterWanzel.com. That's D-E-X-T-E-R-W-A-N-S-E-L.com. A hand-signed limited edition CD also is available. And I recommend a deep dive into the Philadelphia International Catalog. Dexter Wanzel and his excellent band are playing a few live dates in England in August, so check them out if you're there. And otherwise, let's hope he tours the U.S. soon. Carol Pop is produced by Chris Swake, whose work also is out of this world. I'm Mark Caro. Please follow me on Twitter at Mark Caro at M-A-R-K-C-A-R-O and visit the Carol Pop website, carolpop.com for posts about music, movies, and food, and also this Carol Pop podcast. Please share, subscribe, and tune in again next week for another Carol Pop conversation. Thanks. Thanks.